We start the show today, though, talking about a new policy in Delta. Disclose your vaccine status or take an unpaid leave or undergo frequent rapid testing. Those are the options Delta teachers will soon have to work with. This after the school district voted on a vaccine mandate for teachers and support staff, as well as employees at district headquarters. That's Global News reporter Andrea McPherson. Joining us now to talk more about this is Val Windsor, the board chair with the Delta School District. Thanks so much for being here. I'm pleased to be here. Thank you. And Andrea kind of listed there who this mandate will uh, impact or who falls under this mandate. Do you know how many people or how many employees will now have to show that vaccine status? It will be over 2,000. We're We're the biggest employer in Delta. All right. And do you have any idea at this point, the percentage of people who are employed at the Delta School District who perhaps who are not vaccinated? I'm sorry. That's okay. We have, I'm, this always happens. (laughs) I'm sorry. We don't have a a precise number. Uh, We haven't done a survey of employees because what we found is uh, school districts who have done those surveys have found the information to be incomplete. So what we are using for our information is the BC Centre for Disease Control, um, the Delta information. And as you may have seen, it it indicates that we have a a fairly high rate of folks who are vaccinated in Delta. But there are still those who aren't. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So what happens then? The timeline then is it six weeks from Monday to disclose whether or not they are immunized against COVID-19. When we get to that six-week mark then, what do you anticipate? What's going to happen then if there are people who still are not vaccinated? So that's a a minimum six weeks. It could go a bit longer. Uh, Those who have not disclosed their vaccination status to us, we're going to assume are not vaccinated for one reason or another. And at that point, uh, then they're going to be asked to either submit to the rapid testing or to take an unpaid leave of absence if they don't wish to do that. So we'll be, um, you know, collating all the information as to employees' vaccination status. And then we will know precisely who, who we don't know whether they are or not. All right. So so as the policy stands, then people would still have the choice. It, seem, it seems like if, if people do choose to not get vaccinated, they would then still have the choice to keep their jobs, but undergo the rapid testing. Yes, absolutely. All right. And, and are there any plans to bring in rapid testing anyway, as far as I mean, we do know that people who are vaccinated can still get this infection. It thankfully is much milder. But are there plans at all to bring in that rapid testing as there could still be cases and spread through people that are vaccinated? Well, we know that our schools are going to be getting some rapid test kits, but as to how they're actually going to be used, we haven't quite decided that yet. So once we know about that, we'll certainly let people know. And as far as uh, if someone then chooses to not get vaccinated and chooses to go the route of regular rapid testing, uh, do you uh, do you know what that's going to look like as far as it is it going to be a rapid test every day when somebody comes to work and who's going to pay for the rapid tests? Well, for starters, the school district is going to pay for the tests. And as for the details of it, they're still being worked out. We're still finalizing our plans for that. So, um Again, we can't provide you with anything more than that because we're still working on it. Sure. No, that, that makes sense. What kind of reaction or have you had any reaction to the announcement of this policy at this point? 
Well, like every kind of a controversial decision and sensitive one, such as this one is, there are those who are supportive and those who are opposed to it. And everybody's entitled to their own opinion. So, you know, it's not going to be 100% one way or the other. Right. Do you think, though, are there people that would like it even to be a a bit more strict in that we do see other policies and thinking about policies for federally regulated businesses where it's it's a mandate of get vaccinated or you're going to be put on unpaid leave and then you could potentially lose your job? There isn't the option of regular rapid testing instead of vaccination. Do you think is there any call or or are you hearing from anybody that would like to see that uh, in even stronger policy in place? Well, as a board, we have not decided to go down that road. Um, our hope is that uh, that people are going to choose to get vaccinated because, I mean, they do have an option. Our preference, of course, would be that they do get the vaccines and then they don't need to be rapid tested. But no, we felt this was the best way to go for our particular district. And have you heard from any other districts or do you get the idea or the the idea that any other districts might be following in your footsteps or might bring in similar policies? Well, as far as we know, we are the first district to actually uh, mandate a, a proof of vaccine requirement. Um, other districts are making their own decisions and they're based on their own their own needs in their district and their own unique circumstances. So you know, whatever choices they make, we're very supportive of what they do, too, because you know that this is not an easy decision to make either way. Right. Was there any discussion on the the district paying for the rapid testing for people who are employed who choose not to get vaccinated? Uh, as far as I, I guess it's unclear, not knowing the numbers, what those costs will be. But wouldn't it be more of a kind of a prodding if if the goal is to get people vaccinated and if they knew that if they didn't they would have to pay or cover the costs of the tests wouldn't that be more of an incentive well again this is the route that we have chosen to go uh, and that was for us to pay for it Um, i think probably the the carrot rather than the stick routine Um, we're obviously hoping that our employees are going to get tested for start or to get vaccinated first of all but if they're tested at least we know that if they're coming to school that they are as safe as the test kits say. So we're obviously trying to keep our employees in school as well so that our schools can operate. And and this mandate, by the way, is for every employee in the district. So right from the superintendent's office all the way throughout the system. So anybody that works that gets a paycheck from the Delta School District, no matter what your yes. job is. Yes, indeed. And I know that it doesn't include students as as far as a vaccine mandate. Is there any plan as far as testing of students or is that even possible? I quite frankly, I don't see us going down that road, but who knows what public health will do? I mean, we were hoping that public health would mandate one for adults, uh, you know, our employees, but they made it very plain to us and clear that we are the employer and therefore that's our responsibility. As far as kids go, um, we'll leave that up to public health. All right. Uh, have there been any any uh, instances, or I, I know a lot of people are now looking at the, the school system and how things are going in Delta. Have there been any, do you know of any schools that are looking at functional closures or any issues when it comes to the spread of the virus? Not at this point. Uh, we're managing that we are down a few people, but so far we've been able to cover, um, you know, with teachers and internally with other staff. And we're hoping, again, if people get vaccinated, that this is going to help cut down on on the spread of the the virus, as well as, uh, you know, mitigating their their, uh, symptoms 
and hopefully keeping both students and staff at school so we can keep them open. Right. When you say you're down a few people, uh, is that because of COVID or COVID exposures? Well, uh, yes. Yes, there are some. Just like every school district, every school's got a few people. I mean, the way the Omicron virus is spreading, it's uh, sort of inevitable you're going to run into it at some point. But again, with that vaccine, it'll help. All right. We will leave it there for today. Val, thanks so much for joining us and for talking about what the Delta School District is doing as far as this fight against the virus. Appreciate your time today. You're very welcome. Well, talking more about that announcement, it was made earlier today by the Minister in Charge of Mental Health and Addiction in this province. The Tailgate Toolkit was created with people working in the trades who have lived experience with substance use. It's been tested on Vancouver Island over this past year. It's already reached hundreds of people. This program teaches people about the risks of using drugs, of using drugs alone, teaches them about pain management options, drug poisoning prevention, and connections to treatment. That was Minister Sheila Malcolmson talking about the investment of $1 million being made through the Canadian Mental Health Association, the BC division of that. The project hoping to reduce the stigma that is often associated with substance abuse and raise more awareness about this specifically in the construction industry. Joining us now is Chris Gardner, President of the Independent Contractors and Businesses Association. Chris, thanks so much for being with us. Uh, Good afternoon. Thanks for having me on your show today. Uh, What's your response hearing about the $1 million expansion, this investment to to try and tackle the overdose crisis, specifically when it comes to construction? Well, you know, uh, programs like this, announcements like this are are really important. And and because as we go through, uh, you know, the last two years, we've gone through the uh, COVID-19 pandemic, global pandemic, I think there's sort of three big takeaways that are starting to emerge. We're working differently. We, we know there's, we've got to uh, address supply chain uh, weaknesses and, and, and risks. And the third thing is wellness, generally defined. You know, in, in BC today, about 250,000 men and women woke up and went to a job site. The work they do accounts for about 10% of our economy. But there are some unique stresses and pressures that are associated with with working in construction, and um, and what we found is when we look at our uh, at ICBA, we have 120,000 people on one of our health and dental plans, and uh, on every single one of our plans, uh, in the top three drugs that are prescribed, um, those drugs deal with. Uh, mental wellness-related issues, anxiety, depression, and the top three drugs prescribed on every single one of our plans. So mental wellness is a very, very significant issue, and, and everyone is now starting to talk about it. And to your point, remove the stigma. And that is the most important um, uh, thrust of all of these programs. We have to normalize the discussion around mental health and wellness. And when we talk about the construction industry and jobs in construction, why is it that do you think that that we we are seeing that number of overdoses or we're seeing uh, more issues when it comes to the use of these illicit drugs? Well, I think there's a couple of things that are unique about construction. One is um, it's a male dominated workforce. There There are more women working in construction today than there ever has been. But it's still, if you look at construction job sites, it's dominated by, by, by men. And the traditional workplace culture in construction has been suck it up and keep working, power through it, head down. 
uh, if you're going to have a problem, have it on the weekend, but be back on the job site on Monday. Um, and so we need to change that culture. So there's, there's programs now being developed to address that at, at that, that root cause so that people can feel more confident and comfortable putting up their hands saying, hey, I'm struggling, I have an issue. And every single one of the plans that we offer for the construction um, workforce, they all have an employee assistance plan. And that employee assistance plan allows individuals who are struggling to, to make a call. It can be anonymous, and there's free counseling sessions that they uh, can take advantage of. And we noticed, if you look at um, the data that we've uh, we've put together from the use of the plan last year compared to the year before, the usage of that plan has gone up 50%. So people are, the conversations are starting to happen. People are starting to take advantage of these, uh, of these resources. Um, and I think that uh, we're, we're starting to make headway in removing the stigma around mental health. But, you know, we've, there's still lots of work to be done. Is it also uh, something that, and looking at the announcement today, and one of the the points being made is that this toolkit has been developed, and it, it took in a lot of consultation from people who are are living have experience with this, with whether it's mental health or whether it's it's addiction in the past. And I even remember sitting in in courtroom one hundred and one in provincial court covering another case, but sitting there for for half a day once, and the number of people that came through and hearing the backgrounds was was so-and-so, you know, worked on a construction site, fell, was injured, that led to an opioid addiction, and it led to now this person is is being charged with crimes, uh, theft and, and such. And that's, to see that, to see a life take that turn because of one workplace accident, do, do people, do you think, are we, are we getting a better understanding at just how easy it is for that to happen or just how common it can be for something like that to happen? Yeah, you know, I think um, I think COVID has helped accelerate um, the the focus on the issue that you're raising because what happened is that across our economy, across the world, people were forced into isolation, and that that by taking away every single relief valve, whether it's recreational, educational, community events, everything was shut down, and so there's now been an, an enormous focus on helping people and giving them the resources to start a conversation that says I'm struggling and that that's okay. If you're, if you're having a challenge and you're struggling, there are resources to help you. And, and the point about uh, these programs are more successful when they are developed specifically with the construction worker in this case in mind at the center, at the focus, um, because there's no point in, in having a lot of, you know, programs and language and graphics and images in these programs that a construction worker can identify with. Um, so in the programs we develop at ICBA, uh, it, it's all, all the images relate to uh, construction workers. The language is written in a way that they understand. There are uh, toolbox talks. There's all kinds of, of uh, conversation starting points that uh, that you would that are not, that would naturally take place on a construction site, and that's really important for starting that conversation. And when we look at the funding itself, and again, this is the $1 million expansion, that's obviously not going to solve everything. It's not going to be enough to deal with the entire problem. But do you think that will kind of complement what organizations like yours are already doing? Yeah, I think it's important to listen. We need uh, there's there's uh, this is an issue where there's. Uh, everyone is in agreement. This is a significant issue, and we need everybody pulling in the same direction, whether it's 
organizations like ours at ICBA, government organizations, uh, nonprofit organizations, um, labor organizations, employers, uh, everybody working together, talking about this, normalizing the conversation, removing the stigma is going to make sure that people, when they are struggling, um, get the resources and the help that they need. Because one of the challenges with, with mental health is it runs deep. It's very silent. But when it surfaces, the the consequences can be tragic and it can destroy people and families, uh, workplaces and communities. So this is it's vital that we have these conversations, that we normalize them and that um, we uh, it's it's no different than any other illness. Like we, we talk about cancer and heart attacks and stroke all the time. But we've got to be able to talk about mental health and wellness in those same in that same breath. And do you see that changing? You mentioned, you know, in the past, it would be very much like get back to work on Monday and that's it. So don't don't spend a lot of time. But do you see that changing? Yeah, I do. I think it's changing because of the attention it's getting, but also because, you know, people who are now in management positions are are, are, are younger folks. They're, they're in their 30s or 40s. They're the you know, the, the new, a new generation of, of younger workers um, um, think differently about these issues. They're more open um, to have these conversations. So I think I think there is there is change that's uh, happening on construction sites. There's more programs. You know, we have um, uh, four thousand workers at ICBA who are enrolled. Uh, in our, our new mental wealth and wellness, uh, wellness program that we uh, launched last year. It's free to ICBA members and their employees. Um, and we're hoping to double that this year. Um, so we're happy with that. But, yeah, we, we've got one program and there's lots of other programs and resources out there. The more that we're having these types of conversations, the more people are going to get the help they need. And is that program, is that for people who are seeking out help or is it also kind of a peer program where others in, in construction are, are able to help out as well? Yeah, well, the way we've set up the program is that the company enrolls everyone in the company, whether you're in the, in the head office uh, or on the site whether you are a president, a vice president, uh, a director, a project manager, a general laborer, everybody is enrolled in the course and everyone goes through the course at the same time, but at their own pace, but they go through it. And, and it's set up where there's different themes. You know, mental wellness is, is, can be reveal itself in lots of different ways. It can reveal itself in concerns and issues around uh, that, that end up um, uh, in terms of substance abuse, it can be anxiety and depression. It can be issues that are triggered by financial issues or uh, other health issues. Um, uh, so we've got different themes that 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 are talked. How to talk about these themes? How to deal with the stresses and pressures of everyday life and on the job site. All right. Uh, interesting uh, perspective on this and and reaction to this announcement. Chris, we'll leave it there for today. But thanks so much for your time. Great. Thank you very much, Jill. Take care. Well, looking at some research out of UBC, it would appear that there are more Canadians that could be driving high and this increase since cannabis became legal. Joining us to talk a bit more about this is Jeff Brubacher, Associate Professor in the UBC's Department of Emergency Medicine, also the principal investigator of this study. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks, Jill, and thanks for having me. What specifically were you looking at then, or how did you figure out if Canadians and more Canadians are driving high? Yeah, so uh, we did, this was a study in, in British Columbia, actually, and what we've been doing is measuring 
THC levels and alcohol levels uh, in drivers who come to trauma centers when they're injured in a motor vehicle collision. And what we found is that following cannabis legalization, the number of drivers with THC above the legal limit in Canada, so that's two nanograms per mil, approximately doubled. So that those numbers went from 3.8% for legalization up to 8.6% afterwards. And the same was true for drivers with higher THC levels, above 5 nanograms per mil. Those numbers went from 1.1% before legalization to 3.5% afterwards. Um, And, you know, interestingly, the biggest increase in uh, THC was in drivers, older drivers over the age of 50. Um, So, yeah, that's what we found. Hmm. Were you surprised by by those findings or those increases? Um, I, I was a little surprised. I mean, you know, at the same time that cannabis was legalized, the government put in laws to uh, try to prevent drivers from driving after using cannabis. They introduced those legal limits for THC, and they gave police authority to use roadside saliva testing. But, you know, once cannabis is legalized, it's normal to expect that more people are going to use it. So I was a little disappointed, but I guess I wouldn't say I was overly surprised by it. And how do you know for sure then, or does this research take into account, I mean, if somebody has, if if you can detect THC in someone's blood, is it possible, because it stays in the blood or it stays detectable longer, is it possible that people would have had THC in their bloodstream, but that doesn't necessarily mean they were high? Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. I mean, THC is, or cannabis is notoriously difficult to measure compared to alcohol, and certainly uh, people who use cannabis regularly can have uh, detectable THC for a long time after they last used. That's more common with lower THC levels. When you get about at the higher levels, above five, it would be a little unusual. And we did see an increase at the higher end as well. Um, and, you know, related to that, in, in previous research, we looked at the risk of crashing, and we found that drivers with THC below five were not at increased risk of crashing. So many of these drivers, especially with the lower levels, were probably just using cannabis, but it may have had nothing to do with the reason why they crashed. But likely some of the ones at the higher levels above five, probably some of those crashes could be attributed to, to the cannabis use. Right. And is there a way then, like you say, comparing it with how we can test for alcohol in someone's system, is there, is there a way or is it far too difficult then to figure out this, the, the THC level in, in this person is this level? So then do we know then how much, say, how much cannabis was ingested in a certain way? Or is it still kind of guesswork trying to figure out the, the amount and the amount that's in the bloodstream? Yeah, it's, it, it is it is way more complicated, and there's not a, a good correlation. You can't, uh, you, you know, take an estimate from a THC level and backtrack and say that was from this much THC because it just depends on on so many different factors with cannabis compared with alcohol. And similarly, it's not the case that everybody responds the same at a given THC level. Some people could be very impaired at a level of two, and other people could have minimal impairment at a level of of five or higher. 
there, there's not that strong correlation between impairment and THC levels that we see between impairment and alcohol levels, for example. Hmm. And interesting that the looking at the timeline of this as well, in that looking previous to cannabis being legalized to, to post, mm-hmm. does it show then, because I wouldn't imagine just legalizing it would have made that much difference with somebody. If you're a responsible driver and you know that you probably shouldn't be driving when you're high, just because the substance becomes legal, it would seem strange that that would change anything or change your approach. Yeah, but it, it, I think it seems it looks like it did. Um, and, you know, it may well be that that many of these people were responsible drivers and they waited what they thought was a safe time. But, you know, once it's legal, you're going to have more people using it and maybe they're going to use it more often. And maybe the sort of taboo around using cannabis and driving is feels a little bit less than what it was pre-legalization. So I, I think there was some behavioral change um, following legalization. Uh, do you think that this points to then for the need for perhaps a better way of testing and finding out uh, much like we have the roadside tests or tests for um, alcohol use to find a way to better test for people who might be behind the wheel with uh, a large amount of THC? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's part of it. I, I think a lot of it is messaging, uh, sort of almost more a public health. Like the, the message should be separate cannabis use from driving, same as you do with alcohol. And, and what does that mean? So if you're going to smoke cannabis, you shouldn't drive if you're still feeling any effects. And you should plan to wait at least four hours after you smoke before you drive. And if you take an edible, the, the effects can last much longer. So in that case, you should plan to wait at least eight hours. And again, if you're feeling any effects, don't drive. Um, it would be helpful for, you know, getting back to the original question, it would be helpful for police to have better tools to identify drivers who are impaired by cannabis. Um, it's notoriously difficult. And, you know, there isn't, there isn't that strong correlation between THC level and impairment the way there is with alcohol. There isn't uh, a good correlation. There's a modest correlation between saliva THC and blood THC, but it's not as as strong as between breath alcohol and blood alcohol, for example, and the kind of impairment that that drivers have when they when they use cannabis isn't as easy for police to detect. So, yes, more police training, but I think also more public education. You know, most people are responsible drivers, um, and and you know, I think would hopefully respond to good messaging about separating cannabis use from driving. And, and one other finding I wanted to ask you as well, and kind of going back to, you mentioned that, that the largest increase in this study was the drivers over the age of 50, but mm-hmm. no real significant change when you were looking at drivers, say, that also had alcohol in their system or had both alcohol and THC. Yeah, yeah, that's correct. And one of the things I was kind of hoping was, and some researchers have talked about the possibility of there being a substitution effect where people who, you know, would otherwise drink and drive if cannabis becomes more readily accessible, maybe they'll use cannabis and drive instead. Now, any impaired driving is bad, but cannabis doesn't cause the same risk of crashing as alcohol does. So we wanted to see 
if there was any evidence of a decrease in the number of drivers who use alcohol. And we didn't find any statistical drop in the number of drinking drivers. There were still, I think, something like 9% throughout the, the course of the study were, were above the legal limit. And, and, and those are really high-risk drivers. All right. Well, interesting findings, uh, definitely, uh, in this study. We'll have to leave it there for today. But thank you so much for joining us to share this with us today. You're welcome. My pleasure. Well, let's find out what's happening in some other countries when it comes to restrictions and the relaxing of those restrictions. Joining us now is Shane Woodford. He's a freelance journalist based in Denmark. Shane, thanks so much for being here. Always a pleasure, Jill. How are you? Uh, Very well. How about you? Yeah, good. Thank you. Uh, You've been writing about this, obviously, throughout the pandemic, and your latest post is talking about uh, a return to somewhat of a a normal life. So what's happening there? Yeah, and by the way, just to get some context, it was a pretty radical shift in tone this week. Uh, We had a COVID update press conference uh, just over a week ago, and that one was was totally very different. It was very much we're deep in the doo-doo as long as the dark winter months are on us. Uh, Omicron's raging. we got to really buckle up through February, and then maybe we'll see some light at the end of the tunnel. And then we fast forward to this week, uh, and there is this really surprising tone, uh, whether they're correct or not remains to be seen, but this tone of uh, we're close to being out of this thing. Uh, we feel we can return to normal life. We're going to start phasing out restrictions as of this Sunday. Uh, not too fast, not too slow. Uh, the emphasis was on trying to take a measured approach so as to ensure the hospital system uh, isn't overwhelmed. But uh, yeah, there's going to be uh, a reopening of movie theaters, concert venues, conference centers, you know, uh, museums, zoos, amusement parks. Uh, the list goes on and on. Some other restrictions will remain. Uh, but it sounds like they're going to chart a path now on a fairly regular basis to take it all down and return to a quote-unquote sort of near-normal life. Hmm, interesting. And do you do you know what it was then that kind of prompted that shift in tone? Yeah, the feeling of the press conference was that they seem to feel that the Omicron variant uh, does not pack as serious a punch as was feared. Uh, there was a lot of talk about it being mild, which I think was... Uh, a bit of an understatement, but um, there was also this like, well, we don't know. We need clarity. We need the data. Uh, and the the health officials, the health minister, the National Health Board here in Denmark really came out and kind of said, listen, uh, the numbers we're seeing shows that, yeah, we have really high infection rates and the hospital situation is, is not ideal, but it's we're also seeing like, you know, deaths have been really decoupled. We haven't seen any really significant increase in deaths. Uh, ICU numbers have not gone up the way regular hospital admission numbers have. And uh, they seem to think that they're looking at data that shows them that uh, we're out of the woods on this thing, or at least on the way to being out of the woods. Um, one of the interesting stats that popped out of this press conference that caught my ear was that the vast majority of patients who are in intensive care with a coronavirus infection do not, in fact, have the Omicron variant. They're seeing a majority of people in ICUs who have the Delta variant, not the Omicron. And this is in a country where we're seeing 96% of all sequence positive tests come back as the Omicron variant. So it's very much dominant here, except for intensive care. Hmm, interesting. And, and when you say that, then, that things are going to reopen, but there, might, there will still be some restrictions in place, so are there still going to be things like mask wearing, or, or what, what do you think will still kind of look different? 
Yeah, we have uh, we've reinstated. If you remember back in September 10th, Denmark dismantled all restrictions. We literally returned to normal life, uh, and then we had a really really bad Delta wave that sort of arrived in the beginning of November and got really intense halfway through. And of course, as we all know, the Omicron wave. Uh, followed that up and really turned a bad situation into something terrible. So in the middle of all that, we went from, hey, look at us, we're living a normal life, and they basically reinstated virtually almost every restriction that they had prior to that in a bid to try and cap down the infection. So uh, right now you got to wear a mask on buses, uh, ferries, public transit, trains, all that kind of stuff. you got to show a Corona Pass or a vaccine passport system uh, to eat at restaurants, go into movie theaters, that kind of thing. Uh, there's also capacity limits, and uh, if you go to a store, for example, you might see a sign on the door that says, oh, hey, listen, we only have 15 people allowed in here at one time, depending on the floor space. So some of those are going to linger on. Um, they didn't really specify sort of what the timeline is to remove everything, and, and I think probably the Corona Pass, things like that, maybe masks uh, will linger on for some period yet, but... Uh, it's going to be, you know, going out to see movies, uh, a lot more freer to go to museums and zoos and all that kind of stuff beginning on Sunday. Hmm, interesting. And, and what about testing? Because I know we've talked about it in the past, mm. and that's been one of the criticisms here is rapid testing really hasn't been used in any kind of uh, big way as far as the public. We can't go and buy them yeah. like you can in some other places. Uh, some provinces yeah. are, are, pretty, are, are giving them out to some students and such, not here in BC. What's it like as far as rapid testing there? Yeah, overall testing here, we're doing about half a million tests, PCR and rapid testing uh, through the state every single day. We have a capacity of about 750,000 a day, so we're tucked in well under that. But they've also unleashed, uh, Denmark went out and bought 65 million home testing uh, kits, so rapid tests you can take by yourself at home. Uh, Those went to hospital workers and a good chunk went to the schools. So, for example... Uh, my little guy who's seven years old and is in grade one here in Denmark, we have a, uh, we went down to the school and got a mitt full of free uh, at-home testing kits, and uh, we have to give him a test twice a week, and as long as he doesn't come back positive, then off to school he goes. And they're also available everywhere. I mean, I went to the grocery store the other day, and there was a big pile of uh, self-testing kits that were fairly cheap and inexpensive, just sitting by the cash register you could grab on your way out. So we have millions and millions of those, as well as a very, very robust state-run testing system. Hmm, interesting. And do you find that people, does it give people a bit more confidence? Or I mean, even for you as a parent, being able to provide that for your, your child and know that at least twice a week you're going to have that testing done? Yeah, it, it does, until we're about a week into this now, and nobody at school is asking for it, so... It seems to be it seems to be sort of run on uh, an honesty principle. We sent the first rapid test to school, thinking, "Well, they must have to check this thing, right?" Uh, and ever they looked at us like we had four heads, and, mm-hmm. and so apparently not. But uh, I mean, I'm assuming most, you know, I can't see anybody deliberately sending their kid to school if a rapid test comes back positive. I mean, maybe in extremely rare cases. But anyway, the only part of that is is that I wish there was some, you know, semblance of checking these things. That would provide a little extra reassurance. But, yeah, it does provide something. Um, you feel a little bit safer. You know, Henrik hasn't had a, uh, a vaccine yet. We all got COVID back in the beginning of December, uh, and he tested positive the week before he would have had his first dose. And once you're positive here, you have to wait 30 days before you can get a vaccine dose. So we're all going for, in, in Catherine and Maya's case, we're going for our booster doses next week, and then Henrik will get his first dose. So our concern up to this point has been that he has been, you know, largely unprotected. Uh, and so the, the rapid testing was a, a nice way to kind of 
try and keep a finger on the pulse of, of what the threat level is at school. Interesting. And and you mentioned, too, uh, I found that very interesting that the cases that are in ICU are, are largely Delta variant, not Omicron. So mm. is Denmark testing all of the cases or sequencing so they know specifically who has what strain? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Denmark has the entire time not only had an amazingly robust system. I mean, uh, back in the Alpha variant wave of a year ago, we were doing almost 800,000 tests a day. That knocked off quite a bit through the summer as the epidemic waned and numbers went down. And then the testing system uh, cranked right back up again as the Delta and then the Omicron wave really hit us hard. So as I mentioned, we're at 750,000 testing uh, tests a day capacity. We're doing pretty routinely around 500,000. And Denmark sequences roughly about 80% or more of those tests each day. So they have a pretty firm handle on, you know, what variant is where and what's going on and all that data uh, is published weekly online so that I can go on and I can see, okay, this X number of cases in here and who's in hospital with what. It's unbelievable, not only the robust testing system, the information they glean with that, but the freedom of just unleashing it on the public so that anybody with a keyboard and internet connection and the media, of course, can go on and just see a wealth of data. I'm just going through a 30-page report right now outlining infection activity over the last week. And I can, you know, it has information on who's in the hospital, what they have, what age they are, uh, how many teachers got sick last week, how many people in uh, employees got sick. I mean, it's just a wealth of information. And Denmark unleashes this stuff like almost on a daily basis. It's really, really wonderful. All right. Well, great to to hear that. And also great news to hear that things are going back to that uh, much more uh, looking like a a normal type of society. Shane, we'll talk to you again, but thanks so much for doing this. Yeah, as long as we don't have another new variant, as we know, we're back to normal till Omicron arrives. So fingers crossed on this. It's been two years. It'd be nice to hit the exit on this thing.